Hi, it's Phil here. I'm recording this on my phone in front of my bedroom cupboard. It's the night before Christmas Eve. Episode 3 is finally done. I'm sorry it took so long. If you stuck with Apex for all of this time, thank you so much. Your support really means so much to me. If you're a new listener, I really hope you enjoy it. What you're about to listen to was originally meant to be just the first half of episode 3, a whole episode on war, brackets. What is it good for? But I felt that it deserved its own... 45 minutes for the story to be told properly. Hope you enjoy! Sansom, and you're listening to Apex. I've got a friend in the studio today. Hello. Hi, Ruth. Thanks for coming. Hi, I'm, I am Ruth. This is Ruth Delahunty. She's brought our story for today, at least for the first 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to tell you about a group of uh, military nurses during World War II, the Angels of Bataan. Angels? The, yeah, the Angels of Bataan. Army nurses, three army dietitians, and one army physical therapist in the Philippines. The story begins in the Philippines. Uh, being an army nurse in the Philippines is quite a sweet deal because it was like hot, it was balmy, they're like sun, you had uh, like palm trees. There weren't very many uh, like uh, soldiers to like look after. Uh, so you had a lot of time to like play golf, play tennis. At night they could go like dancing. A couple of them had romances. They'd read about the war in the papers, but in 1940, 41, uh, everyone was concerned with what Hitler was doing in Europe. Uh, so it felt like very, very far away. When Pearl Harbor came, it was quite a bit of a shock. News of Pearl Harbor came as unexpectedly as had the attack. Uh, especially when 10 hours later, uh, the Japanese sent fighter planes to bomb Manila. Later that day, the sounds of Japanese aircraft were heard overhead. And, Wait, straight after Pearl Harbor? Yeah, well, straight. I mean, they were in the Philippines as well. So essentially, the, the first place the Japanese attacked was the Philippines. I only heard about Pearl Harbor. Well, you're about to hear, about to hear more. Oh, go, oh boy. Take, <laughs> take me on the journey, Ruth. I'm excited. Uh, yeah, so very, very quickly, uh, what was like quite sleepy hospital was filled up with a lot of patients. Bombs fell all around the hospital, but not on it. Uh, one woman called Paul uh, Juanita Redmond uh, was planning a nice leisurely afternoon of golf and ended up having to be in the operating room for about eight hours, which eight was yeah, hours. Quite, miser- quite miserable. Uh, <laughs> you're laughing as you're telling me this. Yeah, I mean, like, it was bad. The only two uh, nurses who had served in war before was uh, the two senior nurses. This was about, of about like 100 women. Uh, so dealing with like mass casualties was like very, very, very new. And, and like quite shocked, like they weren't expecting it. 
So, so mass casualties, how many are we talking here? Uh, so at this point, I think we're still talking in like the hundreds, uh, which would obviously like escalate a lot more as the war progressed. Um, Pretty terrible still. Yeah, I mean, just like essentially uh, a lot of work, quite a big shock. Uh, and then as the Japanese advanced, they were forced to retreat. Army nurses were ordered to evacuate Manila on December 23rd. Uh, so they ended up creating like these make sort of like makeshift hospitals in the jungle uh, with like really primitive technology. Um, one of the nurses said that the, uh, the equipment was wrapped in like 1918 newspapers. So this is like 20, 20 years old. Uh, so yeah, they like, picture like rows and rows and rows of soldiers like in the open air. Uh, then of course you've got like mosquitoes, so you've got like malaria, oh. as well as like diarrhea, like dysentery. Uh, the nurses would be waking up from like first light and then they were essentially working until it was too dark to see. Because uh, you, you couldn't uh, you, like use artificial lighting at night uh, because of the danger of being seen by Japanese aircrafts. So all in all, you know, like pre pretty grim. Not, not too good. Uh, and then after a while, the Japanese uh, began bombing directly like on the hospital itself, um, which is obviously awful anyway, but when you're dealing with like really like shell-shocked uh, soldiers, uh, like much, much worse. So it's like one day, you know, you're playing golf, you're playing tennis, and the next day it's like, bam, uh, you'll see military combat for the first time. Jeez, scary yeah. stuff. Uh, very scary. Terrible conditions. Uh, the Japanese are threatening to overwhelm the front by this point. Uh, so the general is uh, sent to evacuate the nurses to this tiny little island called Corregidor. Um, initially, it was actually only meant to be the American nurses who were evacuated. Uh, but the head nurse, who was a pretty uh, upstanding gal, uh, said she would refuse to go if the Filipino nurses couldn't come with them. I said, what about my little Filipino nurses? They're not going, he said. And I said, well, then I'm not going either because they called me Mama Josie and I'm not going to leave them here. Yeah, so they, they're in the Italian island in Corregidor, which essentially was like no better. Uh, they were all squeezed into this like horrible tunnel complex. It was like dirty, it was noisy, it was crowded and like shelling and bombing was pretty much continuous. Uh, the entire garrison was on half rations, which the nurses could probably stand with, but all of these like injured soldiers, obviously like without having enough food, it was just the difference between life and death. So they're dealing with huge amounts of dead people. Um, General Wainwright, who was like the guy in charge of everything, evacuated uh, who essentially evacuated who he could, which included a couple of nurses. But eventually, yeah, he had to surrender to the Japanese. He was actually, um, he was a really great guy. And um, one of the things which he did do, uh, which I thought was super touching, was send out promotion letters um, with the people he evacuated for all the soldiers who were about to be imprisoned so that their, um, their wives and their children would get higher rations for all the time they were in prison for the rest of the war, which I thought was like super cool. And afterwards he was like herald for like thinking like in a humanitarian way, a moment of like incredible crisis. Some of the nurses actually as well turned down the opportunity to evacuate. Uh, there was one woman called Gladys Miller, which is a terrible name. Um, <laughs> but she, yeah, she she said that she she backed herself to survive imprisonment at the time. She sort of like she thought she would survive in the Chinese uh, in the Japanese internment camps, and uh, didn't really want to leave all these wounded soldiers, so decided to stay. Uh, so altogether, it was yeah a good time for humanity. So the Philippines fell. And these nurses were imprisoned in the Santo Tomas civilian internment camp. Uh, ended up being the largest group of American women ever captured and imprisoned by an army. There was like old women, there was women who had like seen a whole life. Who, there was, and there was women who, you know, like were approaching like retirement age or in retirement age and still managed to survive. Uh, they like really grim, hard, gross experience of the internment camp and of battle what was grim hard and gross about the internment camps why were they so bad 
I mean, like you're a, like you're a prisoner of war. So you don't like the equipment you need to treat your patients isn't good. You've not got much food. Uh, you're being humiliated. You're by your Japanese guards. You've got to like bow to them and stuff. Like it's not it's not nice. Um, a lot of disease. And um, they ended up on about 700 calories a day. But I went to bed hungry. I got up hungry. I lost 47 pounds. They didn't get the worst of it. Uh, the Japanese decided to classify them as Red Cross workers rather than soldiers. Uh, so they avoided all of the big military camps and like hell ships. They, you know, they weren't like mistreated or tortured. And importantly, they were able to keep working in the camp hospital. Um, so avoided like a lot of the feeling of like helplessness, which affected some of the male prisoners. Um, and I think it's pretty cool that, uh, well, a lot of the like men in Santa Thomas died of like malnutrition, disease, or just like gave up. All 77 of the nurses who went into the internment camp uh, came home. That's um, good. Yeah, and every like everyone who uh, met them and experienced their like care whilst they were in the internment camp was like full of praise. Like no one criticized them, and uh, no one had a bad word to say. They were all saying they were hardworking, they got on with the job. And they were just, yeah, a group of uh, very, like, tough, tough tough people. How long were they in, in the internment camps for? Uh, so for about three years, I think. So for, like, most of the war. Three years? Yeah, so, like, a really long... And, uh, yeah, so, like, a really long time. And the, I think the, and the woman, the testimonies from the woman who were in there say that while they weren't mistreated, like, they were humiliated by, like, uh, the Japanese. They were treated quite badly, even if they weren't actually uh, treated violently. So, oh. it was, you know, not, not a good place to be. Um, so at the end of the war, they're liberated. Uh, they turned back up in the States with obviously like quite a lot of fanfare. Uh, two Hollywood movies were released about them whilst they were in captivity. Two movies? Yeah. Um, both they, both movies, which apparently uh, tend to like romanticise their experience of the war quite a lot and don't really do just a, justice to the, the kind of horrors that they experienced. Our country's need, they rose to magnificent heights of courage no woman and few men have ever reached before. From their heroic deeds, their boundless love, their women's hearts, comes this true story of intense dramatic power. So proudly we hail, starring Claudette Colbert. Uh, one of the movies actually spent, spent, spent the whole time talking about the rivalry of two women for one of the men, uh, which is, oh. it's just, it was just rubbish. Like, And they got a lot of complaints over that. Come on, Hollywood. Get your stuff together. Yeah, I mean, who's, who's surprised, I guess? Yeah. Um, they were all awarded bronze stars uh, and something called a presidential unit citation uh, for extraordinary heroism and action. I didn't understand it to be a much, much worse experience of conflict uh, than, you know, what other American soldiers would have been experiencing elsewhere. Um, I think the thing, like more, more than the fact that their actual experience of conflict was so much worse than other people, uh, it's more that they were so unprepared for it. Like most of them had never, in fact, almost all of them had never seen conflict before. They weren't prepared for it until the day. I think like instructions on what to do in the case of being captured by a foreign army came the about came hours before they were actually captured. Um, they were sent. They were essentially on holiday <laughs> from the from the sounds of it. Like they were having a good time. Um, so they're. They come and they, they are on holiday and they don't expect anything. And then there's suddenly an attack and yeah. they're put in one of the most demanding situations that yeah. anyone will ever be put in. For sure. And it's the fact that they rise to the challenge. Yeah, they really that, did. That, that's what gives them the angel's yeah. nickname. And they really did rise to the challenge. Uh, they did they did really, really well. And I think it proved to a lot of people, especially in America at the time, that women really could... Uh, hold their own in a situation of conflict and a lot of stress in a way that 
they, they 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 wouldn't necessarily have been expected to, which is great. Uh, and they they sort of, they paved the way for you know the the women we see in uh, in the military today, like the nurses we see. Um, so yeah, it was groundbreaking stuff. While all this is going on, you've got the actual prisoners of war, the ones who don't have the Red Cross status. There are thousands of them. They've got to be taken from where they've been holding out on Corregidor Island, which suddenly gets captured by the Japanese, to internment camps. And they go through what is called the Bataan Death March, which is thousands of miles, very poor provisions. They aren't given new gear or equipment or shoes. Hundreds and hundreds die of disease along the way. And today, it's classified as a Japanese war crime in World War II. Pretty terrible, right? Ruth, I have a question for you. What is a war crime? Before I started researching this episode, I didn't know. I thought it was just something that was really bad and that happened during war. <laughs> Even though, obviously, everything that happens during war is pretty yeah. bad. Yeah. I just assumed that the war crimes were a whole new level of bad. Yeah. And then that just sort of got judged by the yeah. by certain people. I mean, I feel that is essentially true. It is a, it is meant to be that, you know, like war is bad, but there are some things which even within that context are inexcusable. And I think war crimes was uh, an effort to sort of categorize what those things were to make sure that people within the context of war would not do those things because they knew that there's a chance they can be prosecuted later. So it's things like it's things like genocide. It's things like uh, no, that's that's true. It is it is a lot more complicated than that. And I want to introduce you to a guy that I spoke to to get more of a grip on it. Mm. And his name is Barack Kushner. Barack Kushner. He's an expert in modern Japanese history here at Cambridge University. But as you can tell from my very posh accent. I originally hail from New Jersey on the east coast of the United States. And Barack studies some stuff that not many other people study. Lately, I have been, well, as the last six years, I've been looking at war crimes trials. So specifically, war crimes trials of Japanese war criminals, mostly in the China theater. And I asked myself, how many war crimes trials could there be (laughs) in World War II alone by the Japanese alone. Mm-hmm. If it gives Barack a whole field to spend his life studying. Yeah, for sure. I'm asking myself, like, how many war crimes can I name? And I get to, like, genocide and then I'm a bit stuck. Exa- well, they're not all different types of war crime. Right. But instances. Mm-hmm. The real large part of the trials, the big numbers that not many people know about, would be the 5,700 Japanese tried in about 50 different trials around East and Southeast Asia from about 1946 to 1956. So, yeah, quite a lot. And only recently have we really begun to look at them because only recently have the archives become open. You've got this sort of new area of history that they're looking at. War crimes trials, how they happen, the politics and motivations behind them. And why is the history so new? Well, Barack says that this idea of war crimes as we know them it's also super new. Yes, this is, I mean, we obviously have had, we've had war crimes since time began. Uh, World War One, the Allies tried to pursue a set of new laws, pushing the idea of war, of crimes during war. This is just after World War One. so first they tried to get the German Kaiser, but 
he fled to the Netherlands and got protected there. So then next, in 1921, they tried to impose a small set of trials in Leipzig, but the Germans didn't totally follow through on those ones. Basically, these first couple of attempts never really got off the ground. The real first kind of international um, following international law, uh, somewhat using just means, was World War II. And these were generally, at least in East Asia, generally crimes committed by the Japanese between 1931 and 1945. This is what's covered by the Tokyo War Crimes Tribunal, which is the 5,700 people being tried that Barak mentioned earlier. And the trials here get divided into three main categories, A, B, and C. So class A are, um, it's crimes against peace. It's uh, the leaders, it's individuals, it's those people who propagated what was called aggressive war. Basically trying the Japanese high officials for aggression, starting this type of aggressive war, which is defined as a crime against peace. These are trials for the leaders, who didn't actually commit the crimes themselves, but are seen as responsible. Then you had B and C. In Germany, B and C were uh, charged differently because B was your conventional war crimes, rape, pillage, murder, uh, unlawful kidnapping, whatnot. But you, you had this new category. So A and C are, are relatively new categories, and C was crimes against humanity, which is genocide. And that is a very new category. And within that rubric comes all of those kind of Holocaust crimes and whatnot when you're trying to eradicate a people. How, how new? No, it, was, it's, it was developed in the 1940s. It starts primarily because exiled uh, European and Eastern European governments in exile come to London and they are trying to gain the attention of the world by showing uh, what's happening uh, in their country. So it's not, it's about genocide, but it's also about... Um, it, it's a political thing as well. It or. was a political statement in part that the Nazis should be pursued for war crimes. It was a means of getting around the problem of sovereignty when the Nazis themselves had created a legal... In, in the Nazi legal system, what they were doing was quote-unquote legal. But of course, that was against this idea of humanity. Sounds very hard to define. Yeah, it's, it's a complex thing. They've, they've got these many different categories. And then part of the reason they created, basically this idea of crimes against humanity as a new category of war crime is for a situation where a third party, the Allied forces, can pursue justice sort of for the victims when sovereignty is an issue. Mm. And the whole wording of it, crimes against humanity, is designed to give it this authority which it wouldn't otherwise have. Because crucially, these are laws created after the actual crime was committed. Legally speaking, we have less ground to stand up. But of course, they were arguing these are these are laws about humanity that humanity should be doing this. I know it's a um, I know it's a really hard uh, sort of like area to navigate because, for instance, something like genocide. Uh, you use that term, and because it's a crime against humanity, that means that you have to act. Like you, the, the international community has an obligation to act in the case of genocide. So at the moment, I'm looking at situations like Rwanda, where America was so unwilling to call what was happening a genocide, because that would necessitate like them getting involved. Uh, so the whole like war crime thing does have a really real impact in politics, which is quite interesting. So yeah, it's cool hearing him speak. So here's the rundown. You've got Class A, crimes against peace, to pin down the people starting the war. 
and then class B, the terrible stuff done by human soldiers, the actual people on the ground, and finally class C, the idea of crimes against humanity. On the Japanese side, they mush B and C together because the Japanese are not pursuing a, a policy of genocide. Uh, they are they have atrocities, obviously, a lot of their imperial rule in many areas, obviously, greatly, many people suffered under their rule, but it's a very different policy. And so it tends to be kind of conventional war crimes for the Japanese and B and C for the Nazis. Which brings us back to the war crime we were talking about, mm-hmm. the Vatan Death March. Where does that fit in on the scale? Uh, I don't know. I mean, from the sounds of it, it sounds more like... Uh a lack of caring about how the soldiers were than an active attempt to exterminate them, which I guess would place it lower down in the scale. Um, but in the same way, like, if I'm a... I don't, I, I don't know how war crimes are measured. I don't know if it's in terms of intent or if it's in terms of how much, how much, how how many people die. Super interesting that you said lower on the scale as well. Mm. We're going to get onto that a bit later. So it is an atrocity, but it's not a crime against peace. It's in there modelled with the two B and C categories... A bit of each, a bit of crimes against humanity, a bit of people on the ground. But it's certainly remembered um, as an archetypal moment of a Japanese military atrocity. Okay, let's plunge back in, back to the Battle of Bataan. You have America, you have MacArthur in the Philippines, right? You have Corregidor Island, this impenetrable force. It's, it's, it's protecting the Bay of Manila, and of course it fails miserably, and by you know, the spring of 1942, the Americans are essentially just holding down as they're being bombarded constantly, and it's terrible. Was it really supposed to be this impregnable It was supposed fortress? to be, yeah, it was supposed to be, you know. So, uh, so at this point, uh, to go back to what I was saying earlier, like, they've got no, they've got no rations, like, they're, they're weak, they've got, they're ridden with disease, uh, just from what I know about uh, the situation of the, an- the angels. And the, the people that are coming to the nurses have... Uh, are being treated with like terrible equipment they've not got the rations to improve uh so yeah i can i can see why they fell so quickly oh it's so grim in corregidor island at this point yeah and then like you said by early may the americans surrender and so in only five months the japanese have taken control of the philippines uh yeah everyone was taken by surprise most of all the japanese they were completely unprepared for the U.S. mass surrender. Which is part of what leads to, part of what leads to the, the, the problems at Corregidor and then, of course, the, uh, the Bataan Death March, where they have to move them and they don't really know what to do and they're very poorly supplied. Their logistics are actually failing. That's a major issue for them. It wasn't exactly a priority when they were planning the attacks, what to do with thousands of prisoners of war, but now they have them. How do you suddenly feed and take care of them? They need to move the prisoners from one place to the other. Um, And it is a horrific uh, march. It is uh, brutal. It does not seem to be designed uh, as an extermination march, uh, but it seems to be a complete failure of uh, logistics, supply, and um, kind of questioning what was the need for it in a sense and you saw that I mean, it's, it's one of many examples of Japanese military incompetence really um, and lack of planning and lack of understanding and mixed with brutality as, as well there's a lot of factors going on here not as simple as if you heard the words war crime 
You just imagine brutality, right? Not logistical failure. But both of those are part of the story. I mean, I've definitely heard it, and I've heard, and I know, or at least it is my understanding that there's still quite a lot of bitterness, especially in Southeast and East Asia, towards the way uh, prisoners were treated. And I did always assume that that was because of deliberate mistreatment. So yeah, I didn't know anything about the incompetence aspect. So you have all of these layers of both um, anger, racial anger toward the U.S. and Japanese feelings of superiority and also astonishment that they've won so quickly and the unpreparedness, they were very unprepared for what they faced. And of course, we see that throughout uh, the war after 1941. You see examples of all of these things throughout the Japanese history of World War II. And elements of each go into explaining the conditions of the prisoner of war camps in the Philippines and the rest of East Asia and Southeast Asia, which, like Ruth said, were horrific. In the Japanese POW camps, the death rate far surpasses the death rate of POWs in Nazi camps. This is not, these were not Auschwitz, these are not concentration camps, but POW camps. So the fact that the men, uh, both you know, British and uh, American troops, are dying at horrific rates in Japanese camps meant to many that they were being basically kind of cleansed off, that they were being exterminated because care was not being given to them, because Red Cross rules, international rules were not being followed. There wasn't enough food. Uh, and in many cases, that was, that was the, the situation. Part of the problem, though, in many of the Japanese camps is that the Japanese are facing similar problems themselves. They're eating poorly. Uh, the supplies are not getting to them. And what you see by the end of the war uh, in, in various places in, in Southeast Asia is that Japanese soldiers are being sent to the islands with no supplies whatsoever and being told to live off the land. Wow. Well, you made it sound like a lot of the Bataan death march and the treatment in the prisoner of war camps was due to... Im- incompetence rather than deliberate mistreatment well i don't think we can we, we, we can't rule out deliberate mistreatment but deliberate mistreatment won't necessarily get you the scale of the result of death the result of so many people uh, meeting with meeting with an early death or or uh kind of you know f- further complicating their, their health situation I, I think it's a combination So you've got this element of cruelty, this disregard by the Japanese for their welfare of their prisoners. Remember, the Tokyo trials covered 5,700 people over 10 years. That's a lot of people to prosecute, and it would be very easy to go, oh, the Japanese, they have a very harsh military culture, which a lot of people have said over the years. Mm. Turns out that is not true at all. Mm. I mean... There is definitely a sort of pattern of harsh behavior, but to understand it, you've got to make three important comparisons. You've got to compare it first to earlier wars that the Japanese were involved in, and second to the way Chinese as opposed to Western prisoners got treated, and thirdly to the way the Japanese treated their own soldiers. Okay, so firstly, what Barack says is that if you look back 50 years before to around 1895, when they're fighting the Chinese Qing Empire? Yep. (laughs) Thank you, confirmed that I've got my facts (laughs) right. That is a thing. Nailed it. Yes. 
you do see atrocities committed. But nothing like the scale of what you see in World War II. All of the sudden, in World War II, prisoners of war start getting treated really badly. And that was a, a somewhat new Japanese military attitude that developed more from the 1930s. You don't see that. You don't see it before. Pre-1930s, there are plenty of stories of prisoners of war in Japan being treated incredibly well. There's a famous true story. It's called The Mustache Garden. <laughs> nice. I think it's a film. Of some captives from Germany during World War I who wrote about not wanting to go back home. That's how good their treatment was. I mean, yeah, for sure that fits with my understanding of a big change in Japanese society between the wars. It does demonstrate some of the sea change that happens within the Japanese military, both towards outsiders, non-Japanese, but also towards those in other militaries. And for me, that's an interesting question about aggression. Why does that change? When does it change? I think it helps us go against this belief that the Japanese are always like this, right? We, we talk about Bushido, right? the martial spirit, or we talk about Zen. Or, and when you look back at history, that's not the case. Which means it's really difficult to say why these kind of atrocities get committed. Well, why is it only in some areas that seem to brew this tremendous Japanese aggression? Was it because they were facing failure? Was it because they were facing an unexpected success? So I think there's a, a, many different ways of looking at it. We can't just think, we can't rely only on cultural notions of this is how people behave because that doesn't fully explain things to us. So that's comparison number one. Then, secondly, moving back up to World War II, when you're talking about harsh treatment, you need to look at who is on the receiving end. We've mostly been talking so far about Japanese treatment of US and Filipino prisoners, right? Yeah. But when you look at the Chinese... There really are almost no POW camps of Chinese soldiers. And so I was once asked that question of talk in North Carolina, what about the Chinese soldiers? And they were just shot. Yeah, I mean, I guess that adds another layer of racial complexity to the story. I Yeah, it's weird. I feel like it puts us in this weird position where you have to compare these different levels of suffering, which mm -hmm. I don't like at all, mm -hmm. that you've got to compare the Western prisoners living through hellish conditions. But not summarily shot in the same way that so many Chinese soldiers were. And something to think about. Much more, perhaps, aggression toward the Chinese in many areas than against Western allies. So a little context. Barack explained to me how complicated the relationship was and is between Japan and China. Or at least he tried to because it's very complicated. It is complicated. <laughs> um, uh, as far as I understand, you've got this super cruel attitude from the Japanese in World War II. But actually, when they eventually surrendered, Chinese officials sent out orders throughout the country not to take any sort of retribution against the Japanese, which is weird and kind of contradictory because they were thinking longer term, the Chinese were, they were thinking that a society that's just been through a world war takes a while to rebuild. And at least one factor, is that they wanted Japanese help. It is a bit weird, because it kind of goes against maybe what we'd imagine. 
it kind of goes against a little bit maybe what you've seen in films as well, right? Where you know you seek revenge because that's what the hero does, but uh-huh. uh, it's a little different than an action film. As we're slowly deconstructing this war crime, we can see that it and similar events in the same war theater have causes that are really diverse, that depend on the time and the context, and to some degree, aren't even intentional. And for the parts that are intentional, we can ask whether they actually reflect something deeper. I mean, it's so hard to say, and it's so situational, because you have uh, something like the Japanese issue, where a lot of it wasn't intentional, and like the there seems to be quite a disconnect between the leaders at the top and the people on the ground, uh, which obviously makes it so complicated. But then, you know, I've been studying something like uh, like the genocide against Bosnian Muslims during the breakup of Yugoslavia. And in that instance, committing a war crime seems to be very intentional. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know what to make of that, but I think... I mean, I imagine it's like anything, depending on the situation, you can draw very different conclusions about what it means about that specific society. Yeah, you've got to link it to the specific society. That's the third comparison that I want to move on to. Thirdly, and finally, Barak mentioned Bushido earlier. That's sort of the Japanese equivalent of our concept of chivalry, although listeners, please, please feel free to correct me online. And while we see atrocities on a larger scale, in the 1940s and 50s then earlier, this isn't totally from a lack of respect towards the enemy. To an extent, it's a deeper mentality than that, like you said. In the society, the Japanese didn't treat their own soldiers very well. Part of the problem, though, in many of the Japanese camps is that the Japanese are facing similar problems themselves. They're eating poorly. Uh, the supplies are not getting to them. And what you see by the end of the war uh, in, in various places in, in Southeast Asia is that Japanese soldiers are being sent to the islands with no supplies whatsoever and being told to live off the land. Wow. So there's a famous book that's translated as Fires on the Plain where essentially the soldier is called, just go die, right? Just, you know, he, he's, he's ill, he has dysentery, he has, he's trying to eat potatoes that aren't really cooked. And he leaves, as he comes back to his platoon and they said, you know, why, why are you here? Well, go off. And so that mentality to their own soldiers at a time of great duress toward the end of the war, of course, no one knew the war was going to end then, allows you some insight into the mindset then of the sort of attitude they would have had to a foreign enemy, and even less compassion um, or understanding or uh, a lack of acceptance that one didn't, that if you don't die in battle, then you really shouldn't be there. From my point of view, when you look at a broader perspective of the story and the history, I find it way harder to say who are the victims and who are the perpetrators. Like, the same thing that led to the prisoners of war dying in terrible conditions in the camps led to a lot of ordinary Japanese soldiers being sent off unprepared into the Philippine jungle. I mean, yeah, like it's it's with any of these things, especially something as horrific as war, everyone's a victim in some way, which is why it becomes so hard, I imagine, to do things like prosecute for war crimes. But even so, like, you do need war crimes because you do, I mean, I, I feel like you do need to have things which are considered unacceptable, even within such extreme context of war. And in those kind of situations, you can't 
take into account you know like why someone did a certain thing or whether we should feel sorry for them or whether they were having a rough time themselves because otherwise it would be impossible to hold anyone to account that's such a murky area to wade through ah uh, yeah but it's war and it's, it's war and law which are the two the two murkiest areas <laughs> And it's interesting to think that even the Japanese themselves are not sure when the war ended. In, in the early 1970s, there are still a few Japanese soldiers who are found still fighting the war in the Philippines because they don't believe the propaganda leaflets that have been dropped that Japan has surrendered. That's crazy. Weren't they part of divisions that got withdrew? How were they still there? Uh, they were struggling alone. There's one group of three or four, and they were deep in the jungle. And they kept kept kind of sporadically fighting. They would kill pigs. Occasionally, they would kill a a Philippine uh, peasant, uh, and uh, it became a problem. Sweet Jesus. Yeah. And and so did people have to go around and hunt them up and just be like, guys, the war's over. Uh, they tried. To they, they try, at first, they tried to ignore them, and people moved. But as, as kind of populations increasingly moved into the jungle and farms expanded, they came into more contact. And finally, they had, for one of the guys, the last one, Onoda, they had to uh, bring in his commanding officer, who was still alive, in order to say so he could surrender. Unbelievable. Yeah. Very cool. Okay, so after all that, I think I want to say that the basis for these war crimes is, to my mind, a little more complicated than I expected. Mm. So essential conclusion was that it, it, there, there was something within Japanese culture that produced the sort of mistreatment of the prisoners of war that we saw, but s reducing it to just... Japanese culture is barbaric. It's yeah, just like hugely racist. Absolutely. Bit racist. Yeah. And and also now might be a good time to mention that the Japanese aren't particularly prolific compared to other nations around the world when it comes to war crimes. Mm -hmm. I feel really bad picking on them here. I'm sorry. But we can look at this example as a case study for how confusing it is when you look at a bad thing in history and ask why did this happen? Well, because of this and this and this and check out the history and the culture and the specific situation and so on and so on. War crimes happen when all these things funnel into one bright, brutal moment. But they also happen when Europe says they happen. Ah, for sure. So the strange thing about the 5,700 Japanese who are pursued in war crimes trials um, from 1946 to 1956, is that a majority of them are pursued by former European powers. So you see, before the Japanese invaded, a little bit before, the Philippines used to be an American colony. Other Japanese-occupied countries during World War II, well, they used to be European colonies. I mean, we know that's opening a can of worms. I mean, I read something that, no, so far, I think all something like all the people prosecuted by the international is it the international criminal court yes. something like that but they were all african whoa yeah but i feel like for sure a lot of the um sort of like international bodies of law which are set up to prosecute this kind of thing uh, are just another way for western powers to globalize and legitimate their own agendas and so part of the pursuit of war crimes trials on one hand it is 
of course, a, a pursuit of justice against Japanese atrocities. But the second, perhaps the underside of that pursuit is also a way for former European powers to reassert their legal and political authority in colonies where they had lost it. We rarely look at crimes against local people. And somewhere between half a million and a million Filipinos died during the three-year Japanese occupation. Mm. Let's not forget, even after all of this chat about what is a war crime really, that we're really talking about some of the most terrible things that we have done to each other as human beings. At the end of the day, this isn't an abstract concept. This is actual events and memories that are branded onto war veterans' minds and scars that get left on countries and scars that don't necessarily heal. I have extreme emotional attachment to this story, and it's very difficult to do this sort of research. You, um... you have to take a close look at some stuff that nobody should, by all rights, ever have to look at. I was once told when I was giving a talk, when I tried to relay this to the audience, that I was being pornographic. Pornographic in a way, uh, an extreme way in that way. Not pornographic sexually, but pornographic in kind of that uncomfortable and dirty way that I was relating the details of a crime of a Japanese war criminal who was interrogating a prisoner of war. He wrote about exactly what he did to this prisoner of war. And it was fairly graphic. And he was abusing the man as many POWs, you know, like kind of in the movies as you see, putting electrodes on his genitals sort of thing. And someone thought that you were you were sort of reveling it? No, or? they didn't think I was reveling in it, but they, they thought that I was being I was using the example too exploitatively. And I made the case that if you want to understand, I mean, we've been talking for a bit now about war crimes, right? And it's very easy to talk about aggression and war crimes on a very superficial level until you want to actually know what we're talking about. And that was a balance that I find very difficult, both in writing and in giving a public talk. You want to understand about aggression, we have to talk about what the actual specific aggression was. And when you talk about, when you read, and then you relate to people what that aggression really was, specifically, taking a poker, putting it in the oven, uh, putting it in, in a large fire, and then burning someone's genitals, that's graphic. That's por it is pornographic in a way. But it also makes you, it also brings home, in a way, the seriousness of what we're discussing. And at a certain point, I don't want to know too much about what the Japanese did, because you can't, move, you can't live, you can't move forward. It's, it's too gruesome, it's too disgusting, it's, it's too harsh in, in many instances. But you have to know some in order to understand what a war crime actually is. Um, I think, but I think there's a limit to what we can actually know and grasp when we're talking about it. I think this helps us understand in a way that enemies of today do not necessarily continue to be enemies of tomorrow. And understanding those stories that in some ways undermine our simplistic understanding of what we think or how we think the world is, is important to look at. War Crimes Trials, these episodes are one way of looking at extreme circumstances between societies and then how they come to terms resolving, how they find justice or how they find new meaning uh, in their bilateral relationships. And for me, that's also part of the story. It's not just about uncovering the atrocity, which is extremely important, 
but it's uncovering the story then of, of what that leads to. One of the things that several famous scholars of Nazi war crimes uh, have told us is that ordinary men can become monsters in any situation, and I think that's an important thing to remember. Thanks in that segment to Barack Kushner and Ruth Delahunty for bringing some very interesting stories to the table. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> okay, coming up after the break, aggression again, but on a smaller scale. <laughs> Can you guess what we're talking about? I think we're talking about some kind of animal. You could be, you could be right. Am I predictable? Uh, yeah, you are. Right. We'll be right back. <laughs> 